you'll go with me. Why don't you go ahead and stand with me one more time? Because, you know, sometimes we have a, we say, well, it's, we stand in respect to the word of God. Uh, I, I, and that's a good thing, I suppose. But, like, sit down for the preaching of it. You know, like reading is much more important than the preaching, you know. So, see, if I had my druthers, you'd sit for the reading and stand for the preaching. But since I don't have my druthers, why? Because God, God chose the foolishness of preaching. Not the foolishness of teaching, not the foolishness of study, not the foolishness of, of reading concordance. He chose the foolish because preaching is really absurd. Because I could just, we could just email you these texts I'm going to read, and you could read it for yourself, see, and just cut out the middleman. You don't have to give them no offering, we don't have to pay no tithes or anything. We just cut out this, this, send it to you, see. But God didn't choose the foolishness of reading to save them that believed. Because I know folks that have read the Bible through a hundred times still not saved, you know. You got to obey the preached word of God, because the preached word of God takes something five thousand years old, brings it out. Because this whole book is a logos book, but when you pull a verse of scripture out and you apply it to your life today, it becomes a rhema word. It becomes a word that's appropriate for the moment you're living in right now. And so, that's the preaching that the preached word of God. He said, "Where are the wise? Where are all the debaters?" Where are they all at? How many, how many folks have been won by debating the Word of God? How many folks have been won just by wisdom? God chose the, the wisdom of the world's foolishness to the Lord. So by wisdom, they're never... Where, where is all those that have all the knowledge? Knowledge never won anybody. Wisdom doesn't win anybody. It doesn't, doesn't convict souls. It's the preached Word of God that touches the life. So you've got to expose yourself to preaching if you want to be saved. You can read and study and quote and go through all that, but God never chose the... He never chose quoting to save them and believe... Well, I've tried to put myself in a good position today. I'm trying to get you to need me. <laughs> Book of Psalm 78. I'm going to read verses 1 through. I might even read through 8. So join me there, if you would, please. I'm going to read it, but this won't save you. But if I can preach it, maybe it will help a little. Give ear, O oh my people. To my law and incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Would you listen to me, David? Said, incline, give me your, give me your attention. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. I'm going to tell you some old stuff. He says, which we have heard and known, and our fathers told us. I'm going to be repeating some stuff that my father told me about. He said, I'm just going to now give me ear this generation because I want to, I want to tell you some stuff that my father told me. And we will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generations of, to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Here's the reason I'm doing all of this, the reason I'm saying all this, the reason I want your ear, I don't want you to pay attention to me. He said, the reason that I'm doing this, to tell you some old things that their fathers told us, the eighth verse gives the justification for doing it. The reason I'm doing it, he says, and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their hearts aright and whose spirit was not steadfast in God. Now, he said, if you're going to be steadfast in God and you want your heart to be right and you don't want to be stubborn and rebellious, then give me an ear and I'm going to tell you what my father told me. 
Let's lift our hands and love the Lord for his word. Thank you for your word today, God. It's forever settled in heaven. We may debate it. We may fuss and fight, dear God, but your word is settled. Hallelujah. Help us today, God, to minister the settled word of God, to let the word dwell richly in us this afternoon, Lord, that the Holy Ghost would have a way in our lives. Hallelujah. Help the preacher today to do, his, do your will, dear God, for your word shall not return to your void, but accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. I'll thank you for it and praise you in advance, dear God, for what you will do in my heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. You may be seated. I want to minister to you on from generation to generation. And also I want to emphasize the legacy of paying it forward. The term generation gap was coined in 1960 due to the tremendous amount of children that were born from 1946 to 1964. After World War II, all the men came back home. There's a, there's a great deal of uh, uh, children being born. I'm sure you can understand why. Those born during that time are referred to as the baby, baby boomers. And, and although there have been gaps in the decades prior to that, I think the gap within, between the older and the younger generation, generally speaking, was very minimal. There's always been, I suspect, a gap of values and a gap of attitudes and outlooks and tastes and, you know, a gap of customs and clothing and style and music and a gap in even trying to understand the older, the other generation, whether it's a young generation trying to understand the older, the older, the younger. There's that gap that is there and a a lack of communication. Obviously, there's a technology gap between the generations today. And I'm the first to conclude that some of those gaps are insurmountable. Given my best effort on my best day, I may not be able to bridge all those gaps. I'm sorry as I can be, but I don't understand you. If I took a teenager to my house and invited him to go through my closet and pick out a suit and a shirt and a tie and a pair of shoes, he would come out very apologetic saying thanks, but no thanks. It's too old for me. It's not stylish. It's outdated. It's not cutting edge. It's old-fashioned. It's too baggy. You know, people don't wear that anymore. Sister Osborne will try to give our daughter, Kelly, something, and uh, she's forever trying to give her something, and uh, it'll be something very usable, something we paid quite a bit of money for, and it's just no longer something we need or we bought something else to replace it or what have you, trying to cut back. And invariably, Kelly would say, Mom, you know, she hates to say it, you know, but she'd go kind of back and forth, you know, like how do I say this to your mother? But she'll say, Mom, I really appreciate it, but, you know, I really don't need it, you know, and I don't want it. And, and so Sister Osborne would get her feelings hurt. Moms are kind of tender around that edge, you know, when you try to give your daughter something and your daughter says, thanks, but no thanks. You know, you don't want it. You know, she ought to take it and sell it or take it and do something with it, you know, but she'll say, thanks, but no thanks. I really don't, I can't use it. And Sister Rommel then will get on me. Why couldn't she use that? It's beautiful. It would look perfect in her house. She could put it over by the window. She could put a couple of magazines by it, you know. It'd be a perfect thing to set over here and put, she's got all the ways that it should fit into my daughter's life, but my daughter doesn't want it, you know. She just doesn't want it, you know. And now and then, I'm a horrible picking out ties. I'm the horrible tie picker outer, you know. I mean, I find a tie that I think is so cool and I really like it. I get it home, it goes with nothing. 
It's off color. It doesn't go with anything. Sister Robin, pick out a tie, and I will wear it out. It goes with everything. And I can wear it with plaid, stripes. No matter what you put it on, it looks good, you know. And so I got some of these ties that I picked out, and I took them to church, you know, and I hung them back in the, in the men's classroom back there. See, you guys like to have one of these ties here. It's one of the pastor's ties. I actually wore them, you know, once. And uh, Sister Robin maybe not wear it anymore, so I, I wore the tie once, you know, and then maybe somebody would like to have a tie. And uh, they hung back there until they got cobwebs on them, and they... <laughs> You know, and finally, some old boy coming and said, what's these ties back here? I said, take one if you want it because he dresses like a rodeo clown. So it really looked pretty good on him anyway. You know, he don't, uh, you know, it's not real stylish to begin with. Looked like he mugged a scarecrow. So he, he's got all kinds of stuff on, you know. So I was kind of embarrassed that he thought one was cool. <clears throat> Let me see here. What's the time? Is I, I can end it with Jesus. I guess the generation gap has given birth to the estate sale. Uh, Men and women have collected what they deemed worthy of spending their lives and fortunes collecting only to have their heirs decide they don't want it and their values are just too far apart. So it ends up an ad in the paper saying, mom died and dad died. Now we're having an estate sale. We're going to sell everything in their estate. We're going to auction it off. Because there's just nothing that we really want out of all this stuff that they gave their lives collecting. They gave their lives spending and buying and picking up here and there. And then the next generation has no want for it or no need for it. To many, the radical change from one generation to the next generation, the gap has just become insurmountable. And I will never understand them, so many people just give up. You might ask yourself this question this morning. I think it would be a good question. I talk to myself quite a bit. It doesn't hurt anything, you know. The Lord counsels with himself. He never talks to anybody else about it. He just counsels with himself. He says, well, I'm going to say, who are you talking to? I say, I'm talking to myself. I'm the only person that listens and, and really cares one way or the other. So I do a lot of self-talking uh, uh, to myself. And so you might ask yourself this question this morning. What could I gather from my years of living that I could pass on to the sons and daughters of the next generation? Now, you understand it would have to be precious. It would have to be valued. And it would have to be timeless. It can't be something that could be dated very easily, you know. It would, have to be, it would have to be timeless so as not to end up being treated as like some cheap trinket in a yard sale somewhere. What could I gather with my life that would actually prove to be valuable and treasured by, by, my, by, my, by, my, by the next generation or by my by my children. David gave us that in these passages of Scripture that he read. He said, I'm going to open my mouth, and I'm going to tell you some dark sayings of old, and I'm not going to hide them from their children. I'm going to tell you what my father told me, and I'm going to show that to the generation to come, the praises of the Lord, his strength and wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel that he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children that should be born. You understand as an older generation, the younger generation around you still have children in you that have not been born yet. And that generation will never know unless you tell the generation that's alive right now. So you're not only teaching the generation that's alive, but you're teaching the generation that's alive so they can teach the generation that's not even born yet. 
That's what David is saying. What I'm going to tell you, you need to know it so you can tell it to your children. I'm going to tell you what my father told me. I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to tell you what my father told me. Now, you've got children locked up inside of you. Some of you do. Some of you hope you don't, but some of you still do have some children locked up inside of you. Even these young people, these children got children inside of them. And if you don't teach the children, then they'll have nothing to teach their children. That they might set their hope in God. And not forget the works of God and keep his commandments. Now also when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not until I have shown thy strength unto the generations. Then the power even to the one that is to come. The Lord said to Israel when he was giving them the criteria for what they could eat. I know this sounds a little strange, but I'll try to hook these two together. That will be my job. He said you can eat things that, 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 that have a cloven foot, foot and a cloven hoof, and you can eat things that chew the cud. And you can also eat things that have scales on it. Scales, cud, and cloven foot were what you could eat as far as meat was concerned. And so uh, he had that criteria for things that are clean. Cloven foot means it has a split hoof. The hoof is split like this. And uh, so a camel chews the cud, but it doesn't have a split hoof, so you couldn't eat camel. A hog has a split hoof, but it doesn't chew the cud, so you couldn't eat a hog. That's a bad deal right there because I'm, I'm loving hog. You know, I'm loving bacon and ribs and, you know, pork chops and things like that. So I would have done very well. Man, if you could make vegetables taste like bacon, we'd be the healthiest nation on the planet, you know, man. I'd really be, I'd be eating them vegetables all the time, you know, because I love them. I'm a bacon connoisseur. I love bacon. You can't hardly mess bacon up for me. But they couldn't have no bacon because a hog, if I could teach a hog to chew the cud, maybe I could eat some hog, you know. I'd put some Wrigley's in his mouth. Maybe he'd chew on it a while and I could find some way to eat him, you know. But the Old Testament, they couldn't eat no pig meat because pig don't chew the cud. You know, I know chewing the cud. How many know what chewing the cud is? You even know what that is. See, only about a third of the, maybe not even a third of the people even know what chewing the cud is. See, a, a, a cow will eat all day. A cow will just eat and swallow. A cow don't have teeth, by the way. They just pull the grass up and eat and eat and eat and eat and swallow and eat and swallow and eat and swallow and eat and swallow. And, eat and, swallow. and then after a while, after they've eaten and swallow, you know what a cud is? You don't know what a cud. Bless your heart. You're going to learn a lot with me being here. You're going to learn a lot. Let stuff really help you in your ministry. Eat, and, and so after a while, after the cow gets done eating, you'll see them go over and lay down in the shade someplace. They're sitting over going, because they've got three stomachs. Now, some of you would be really in trouble if you had three stomachs because you, you're doing pretty good with one right now. But they got three of them, you know. And so they bring back up. What they do is they bring the grass back up that they've eaten all day in the form of a wad or a cud. And then they rechew it because they don't chew it when they first eat it. But they bring it back up and they, re, they rechew what they have eaten. It's called to ruminate. That's a much better word than cud. Because it's hard to work cut into your everyday language, you know. But you could talk about ruminating. Is ruminating a good word for you? Learn a new word. more words you learn, the better you can think with because you think with words, see. So you need a mental vocabulary. Not like some of these basketball and football players. They go to interview them, you know. They got a vocabulary of about 12 words, you know. They start saying, know what I mean, know what I mean. No, we don't know what you mean because you, you haven't explained it yet, you know. So... <laughs> I gotta watch myself. So when you ruminate, when you ruminate, that means you bring it back up again. You bring it back up again. Ruminating is bringing it back up again. And see, God said, I don't want you to eat anything that just eats it and swallows it, but never brings it back up again. 
Because I want folks to go to church and hear the word of God and eat the word of God. Then out in the parking lot, I want them to ruminate it. I want them to bring it back up again. Because I don't want them to live holy in church than live like the devil on the outside. I want them to live one way in church and not another way. I want them, when they get to school, I want them to ruminate what they've heard in Sunday school. I want them to bring it back up. Now, God said, I don't want you to eat anything that just eats it and swallows it and don't ever bring it back up again. So if you put this in your children, once you get the word of God in your children, you teach them the things of God, you know, they can't get away from that because of rumination. They will bring that back up again. But they've got to have something to bring back up again. So you've got to teach your children as one heritage. You've got to teach one generation. has got to teach the next generation. So they've got a cud. <laughs> they, got, they can ruminate something. They can bring something back up again that you've said unto them. The Bible talks about the Bible talks about tying it around the book of Proverbs, twentieth chapter. You read it right there in the Bible, say right in there. It, 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 I read around the twentieth chapter, somewhere around there. It'll talk about we talk about give the word of God. It says when they sleep, it'll keep them. When they get up, when they walk, it will talk to them. Because when you put the word of God in a child, one generation puts the word of God in a child. He can run, but he can never get away from the word of God. Why? Because once you, you tie it around his neck, the word tie it around his neck, you can look it up yourself, and it means to chew the cud. When you tie it around their neck, I don't care where they go or where they're going or what they're going on in their life, it's tied around their neck. And they get on the hog pen, and they start ruminating, you know. They start bringing back up and thinking about what God has said, you know. And, and your children, your one generation puts it into the next generation. They can't get away from it because now you've tied it around their neck and they can run here they can backslide and go any place they want to go but when they're sitting on the back of the hog pen and they're off in another country or some strange land in a far country suddenly they start ruminating they start bringing up what mama said they bring up what daddy said they start bringing up god said i don't want you to eat something that don't ruminate i want you to eat something he said i want you to put it in your children put it in so they can put it in their children so when you when your children get out and somebody hands them a, 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 a some jo- joint or hands them some liquor or, or so, all of a sudden they ruminate what the preacher said. They ruminate what the word of God said. They ruminate what mama said. They ruminate what daddy said. But if they don't have anything to bring back up again, then they eat with the hogs because they got nothing that comes back up again in their lives. So having your children, I know sometimes Sunday school teachers, you'll think your kids don't, and, and even the parents, you say they, they don't listen to nothing that's been said. I talked to them with tears in my eyes. They don't do a bit of good, you know. <laughs> but what you're doing is you're putting it in their heart. Because cows just eat and swallow, eat and swallow, eat and swallow. They don't, really, they don't really taste it, you know. They just eat and swallow it. You can't tell what's going in the heart of a child. But when they get outside the church, because you can't go with them everywhere, you know. They'll finally get the age. You're going to put them on that big old bus out there, and, and, and Butch will be in there. And he'll have his nose pressed up against the window looking out at you. He's got two teeth gone. Head looked like a road map, scar tissue all over it, burr haircut, you know. And you're putting your little girl on there, a little frilly dress. You think, oh, my goodness, Butch is on there, you know. <laughs> Whoever's on there, you know. Some goofy-looking kid, you know. Nose all pressed up the window, making ugly faces out the window. There's your little girl all frilly looking like all that, you know. She gets on the church bus and you go and cry your eyes out. You know your only hope? That she'll ruminate. That she'll bring back up what you taught her and told her and instructed her and give her. And also cloven hoof, cloven hook, cloven hoof gives stability to your life. 
Flat hoof don't give you any stability, but you got a cloven hoof. You can run up the side of a mountain. You see them mountain goats run up the side of a mountain, you know. You look at their hoofs, it's cloven. It's cut in the middle. And when they sit down, it spreads out and gives them a good foundation. He said, I don't want anything that don't have a good foundation and don't need anything that doesn't ruminate. And I want everything that's got scales on it. Couldn't eat no catfish because it's got to have scales on it. Scales are your protection. It's the armor that you put on that nothing can pierce through it. So if you put armor on your children, you put scales on your children, you give them a good stability with a cloven hoof, and you teach them how to, the word of God, then they ruminate. They bring that back up in the times of trouble and hardship. When mama can't be there and daddy can't be there, there's something brought back up in their spirit that keeps them from going to the world, keeps them from buying into the lies of the devil, you know, because I remember what I was taught in Sunday school. I remember the choir song. I remember the teaching of the word of God. I remember Bible study. I remember we went to conference. I remember we went to the Congress. I remember we were there, and this is what I heard that's what I said, and I can't get away from it because God tied it around my neck. He tied it around my neck. Everywhere I go, it's there. I don't want, I, I'm trying to get away from God, but I can get away from my parents, but I can't get away from God because I keep ruminating. I keep remembering what the Lord said. I, I keep remembering what my Sunday school lesson was. I keep remembering what the choir sang. I keep remembering. I keep ruminating. I can't get away from it. I remember in my father's house. I remember in my father's house. I remember in my father's house how we used to eat. I'm bringing it back up, and God said, don't eat anything that don't have scales on it. It's got to have a cloven hook, and it's got to ruminate. Because when you get that on the inside of you, it'll stabilize you. David said, give me your ear. I'm going to tell you something old. You know, there was a, some people in the New Testament, they want to hear some new thing all the time. All this interest, some new thing. They didn't go credibility into the old things. They didn't give me credibility in anything that had been said. He said, I'm going to tell you an old thing. He said, listen to me, because I'm trying to keep you from being like the former generation. I don't want you to be like the former generation. I want you to be different. I want God to touch your life and inspire you, and you have something great for God. David, what might he have left to the next generation? I'll tell you what. He said, I'm going to give you, I got an old shepherd's pouch over here. It's got a couple of smooth stones left over. A little deal I had, you know. I think I'll leave that to the next generation. Oh, I said, you know, man, I got what I got. I got an old sling I used to have. I practice a practice sling, you know, and I'm going to give that to my kids. And what about my shepherd's staff or a goat skin of water from the well in Bethlehem? I'm going to give you the quill that I used to write psalms or maybe an original copy of one of my beautiful psalms I'm going to leave to a generation. Maybe the ephod that I wore while I danced around the ark. You know where that would have all gone? Yard sale. Ain't nobody going to keep no quill. Young people got ball points now. They won't want no quill. Shepherd's pouch, that thing would have mange on it by now. Nobody going to hang that thing up. David said, I ain't going to leave you none of that stuff. I ain't going to leave you none of that stuff. He said, I'm just going to tell you what my father told me. Because what my father told me has been keeping me all these years. And I'm going to tell you what my dad told me. So you can tell your children and the children that are yet to be born. Let's lift our hands and love the Lord. Let's lift our hands and love the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I think about, you don't, you don't hear it preach much about, but because there's not much in it. But the Bible says that Noah lived 350 years after the flood. Most of us know about the first part of Noah's life, you know, uh, in, in the building of the ark and uh, all that that he went through. But 
Bible said he lived 350 years after the flood. It said 350 years is pretty good. I mean, it's like three lifetimes he lived after the flood, you know. And you have to ask yourself, you know what you did before the flood? You spent about 120 years building an ark and, you know, got all the animals on board and, I know, 40 days and 40 nights, and they spent probably about 100 days in ark all together, you know. I know all about that and building an altar and know all about that, but then you live 350 years after that, three lifetimes after that. I'm just wondering what he did. Well, he did like a lot of people. The Bible said he built an ark for the saving of his house. And after his house was saved, he didn't have a lot of concern. I don't mean to destroy any confidence you have in Noah. I'm just saying. He lived 350 years after the flood. You can read it right there in your Bible. There ain't nothing there. Because sometimes the past outpulls the future. And you know when no one, I could see the grandkids going over saying, Mama, don't let's go back over to Papa's house no more. Don't take us back over to Papa Noah's. He's going to take us up that snake and ark again. That thing smells funny inside there, you know. And I've heard all the stories about where the ox were and where the goat was and where, where the time when Mrs. Noah slept in the basement while he slept on the top floor. And I've heard all about struggles and struggles and hardship, you know. And we don't want to go up there anymore, Mama. Take us back over there again. His old tools are hanging in the shed over there, and they're rusting away. And nobody wants to hear the story anymore, you know. So what does Noah do when nobody wants to hear the story of the past? Because he has no vision for the future, really. So he plants him a vineyard and uh, grows him some grapes, makes him some wine, gets liquored up. Goes to bed, goes to sleep. Then you got 350 years to live. You would have thought, see, this is the important part. He's the only man on planet Earth that has ever talked to God. He's the only man in the world that knows how to build an altar. The only man on the planet that knows what kind of sacrifice she's offered to God. The only man on the planet that understands the covenant that God has made with the world. And he lays in his bed, drunk. Noah, you're going to live 350 years. But the tragedy of that is he never connects with the next generation. He just doesn't. Because he's connected to the past with such a passion of all the years he spent building the ark. And now he knows it's never going to be used again. It's never going to come a flood again. The animals are never going to come again. You're never going to be locked up again. And he's poured his life into the past. But he has no vision for the future. And what is the future? The future is the Tower of Babel. Men begin to build a tower because they're so disconnected from the past. No one, no one's the only one that can do it. He's because he's the only one that knows. It's locked up inside of him, and yet he doesn't make a connection with the next generation, because the past always outpulls the future in an older generation. Their minds go back 
but nothing goes to the future. David's trying to change that mindset. I'm going to tell you what my daddy told me. I'm going to tell you what God, you know, Noah should have been teaching Bible studies. I'm going to tell you what got us through the storm, obedience to the word of God. I'm going to tell you how we survived and came out on the other side, obedience to the word of God. I'm going to tell you like God told me, be faithful and be obedient in the midst of storms. I know we're in a wicked and perverse generation, but I want you to know the power and the might of God, that God preserved us through those 40 days. God took care of us. See, you ought to be telling it, Noah. You ought to be preaching it, not laying in bed intoxicated with the past. You ought to be telling the story to the next generation so that generation can tell it to the next generation. But the whole generations of the Old Testament is so pathetic and so devoid of any kind of value or any kind of worth that the first generation of the New Testament is a wicked and perverse generation. The next is a sin, the Bible calls them a sinful generation. In fact, Peter gets so bold as to say on the day of Pentecost, save yourself from this untoward generation because nothing got connected to them. Nothing was brought out that connected this generation. And so that generation became the Christ killers because there was no father. The Bible said in the very end, of Malachi writes his last verse, he says, until I can get the fathers back to the sons and the sons back to the fathers, until I can get fathers talking to sons and sons talking to fathers, until I get them to the point that the fathers will tell the glory and the wondrous works of God, I'll just shut heaven down for 400 years. And we got a generation that knew nothing about the wonders of God and the glory of God. That's why parents have to teach your children. You have to tell your children so they got something to remember, something to ruminate about. Nehemiah said to those when he was building a wall around, around the temple, he's going to build a wall around the city of God. And nobody raised, up, raised an eyebrow when they built the temple, but he go to and fortify it and build walls around it. He said, I'm going to tell you why you Arabians and you other mess don't want these walls built around there. He said, because you have no memories in here. You don't have no memories in here. But he says, I remember how it used to be. I remember where the priest used to be. I remember when the lambs come in. I remember where, I remember, I remember. I got memories in here. And if you give your children memories, they'll build walls around their memories. They'll build walls around the church because they remember where they got the Holy Ghost at. They remember where they were baptized. They remember where they used to stand in the choir. They remember their Sunday school class. They remember, but the, because those children will build walls around their memories. He said, you folks don't want walls because you got no memories. You got no memorials here. He says, I remember when the armies marched out. I remember when they marched in. And I want to see that again. So we're building walls around it because we're preserving our memories. You want your children to love God and build walls around it. Let them have memories in the house of God. Build memories with them. They're They're the wall builders. The Arabians had no memories there. You have no memorials here. That's why you don't want any wall. You won't help build us walls because you have no memories here, and we're going to build walls around the things that I remember. The goodness of God and the mercies of God, when you get one generation connected to another generation, you know, there has to be some legacy that this generation would want to give to their children. Legacy is something transmitted or received from an ancestor or an elder, a birthright, a heritage, a set of ideas, beliefs, and values, and morals, something that's acquired without any compensation. It betters your position. It gives you higher ground, and it gives you profit. If, if you leave them money, you know what they'll do. They'll spend it. 
If you leave them a car, they don't want your lead sled. They'll trade it off for something, you know. You leave them the farm, they'll sell it. Divide it up, put condos on it. You leave them your wardrobe, yeah, go ahead. They'll put that baby in a trash bag. It'll be sitting on Goodwill's front porch before you get cold. <laughs> what are you going to leave them, David? I'm going to tell them the wondrous works of God. I'm going to tell them the power of God. I'm going to tell them about what God done for me. I'm going to tell him how great he is, and how wonderful he is, and how marvelous he is, and how much I love him, and how good he's been to me, so they can tell it to their children, and they can tell it to the children that are not even born yet. I'm not going to leave them any kind of an article. My mother, she's who I owe all of my heritage to, and uh, I'll close. She, she was a great woman. We didn't, we, we were, we were, I didn't know we were poor because nobody ever mentioned it to us, but looking back on it, I knew we were now. We didn't have no bathtub. I didn't have a bath. I was like 11. I mean, I had a bath, but it was, it wasn't like no bathtub, you know, it was just, uh, my mother gave me spit baths all the time and she, you don't know what a spit bath is either, but uh, you're not very comfortable. Anyway, we'd be spending on the corner cause we didn't have no car. We have to ride downtown on a bus. And we'd stand on the corner, and she'd look down at me, and she'd see something in my ear or something. She'd take her handkerchief and wad it up and ream your ear out with that, crank that handkerchief back in there and pull it through one side or the other and clean them ears out, you know. And I hated that, you know, because after she gets done, it feels funny back in there. It's like, it's like your ears are all wet, you know. So she'd give me a spit bath in there waiting for the bus. We'd get a bus there. Then we'd have to take, go downtown Indianapolis on Sunday or whenever it was and stand down there with a bunch of thugs and and uh, people drinking liquor out of paper bags. And we stand on the street corner, get a transfer, come all the way back out of East New York Street then, get off at the bus, walk, get off the bus, walk about three blocks to church. Church wasn't over, it was probably 11 o'clock, something like that. We'd pray, you know, doesn't do the Holy Ghost. And go back out on the street corner, walk again, go downtown to Indianapolis, get there about 1.30 in the morning, catch another bus, black, dark at night back down home, walk about three blocks and get home. Never missed a service in my life. Cars would drive by us and no one ever picked us up. Never. If I did that today, if I drove by some one of my saints standing on a street corner catching a bus, just drove by and waved at them, you know, that'd be the last time I'd ever see them. It'd be nothing but taillights from then on. You know, I would never see them coming again, you know, so. But that, my mother never mentioned it. I just look back on it now and say, why didn't somebody pick us up and take us home? You know, but nobody ever did. But that didn't stop my mother. And she never said a word about it. She just took me to church. Every revival, prayer meeting, Bible study, everything. We was on the bus. She made my clothes and we'd just ride the bus. Ride the bus. But she taught me how to be faithful. Taught me how to love God. And, and every now and then I ruminate that. My mother died in a car wreck in 71 and I gave everything that she owned, and every, the house and, every, and all the furniture, everything to my sister because my sister never had anything, and, and she always lived in an old broke-down house trailer. And so I, I gave her and her husband the house, all the furniture, everything. And I took nothing that my mother had because what my mother had put in my heart in that legacy meant more than a lamp or a doily or a... I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having some memento or something, you know, but... 
I just had so much of her in me that I didn't think I needed anything else out of her life. I didn't need anything else out of her life, you know. And now and then I ruminate what my mother would say, you know. I'd ruminate what she said. I would ruminate what God had put in her heart. And I would, my, dad, my dad wasn't much of a, a, a talker. He was more of a doer, you know. He, 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 would, he would whip me. And uh, he, he believed in time out. Time out to whip you is all he believed in. So anyway, but he wasn't, he wasn't bad. I worked with him all my life. But I come home with a bicycle one time. I found out by the street. I just found it laying out on the street. And I come bringing the bike. And my dad said, where'd you get that bicycle? I said, I found it out here by the street. He said, it belongs to somebody. I said, but I don't know who it belongs to. He said, you can't keep stuff just because you don't know who it belongs to. You know it's not yours, don't you? He said, you've got to build your life around what you know is what you, you can't build your life around what you don't know. You've got to build your life around what you do know. And you do know it's not yours. Put the bicycle back. Some kid's going to come get his bicycle. So I took the bicycle back. He died in 1991. Two or three weeks ago, I was in Myers. It's an apartment store, kind of like. Kmart, what have you. They got these automatic things where you pay yourself, you know. I'm sure you use all that stuff, you know. And I had the exact change. First time in my life I ever had exact change. So I put my change in there, run my money in there, my bills in there, you know. And ding, 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 got my receipt, you know, picked up my little whatever it was. I looked down in the, in the, in the, the dollar return tray, and there was a dollar bill in there. It was like the lottery, you know. <laughs> I reached and got that dollar bill. I said, man, I, this is my lucky day, you know. I started to walk out. My dad talked to me. Because <clears throat> I had rationalized with myself, I'd give it back to the person, but I don't know whose it is. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I ruminated. <clears throat> and the cud came up. <laughs> my dad's been dead since 91. And he talked to me just like he walked up by my side. He says, so you're going to build your life around what you don't know, huh? You do know it's not yours, though, don't you? I said, yeah, I know it's not mine, but I don't know whose it is. He said, put the bicycle back. So I walked over to a girl who's kind of around the little system over there. You know, so I, I told God, I said, she's not going to give it back. She's going to buy her a Wendy's or something with it, you know, because nobody knows whose it is. Nobody knows whose it is. My dad said, but it's not yours. Give it to her and let God judge her with what she does with it. So I walked over and very reluctantly, uh, I gave it to her, you know. It was just a dollar. It was just a dollar. I'm just telling you, you can't get away from it. Once, once your parent puts it in you, you know, and ties it around your neck. He'd been dead since 91. For Pete's sake, when can you get over that? You can't get over it, you know. Once it gets tied around your neck, you can go anywhere and you can be as old as dirt. And you're still thinking about what your dad told you. And he's in the grave, and he still talks to me. And my mother still talks to me. Because the Bible said when you sleep, it will keep you. And when you walk, it will talk to you. <sighs> when I lay on my bed at night, I think about the goodness of God and how great my mother was, how wonderful my dad was. And then when I get up in the morning and start walking, it talks with me. And it keeps me. Say, go ahead and stand with me. It keeps me everywhere I go. Because that generation tried to teach their generation some values and some worth. And I appreciate all these gray heads and all you folks that have, that have given your lives and given your thoughts and given your testimonies and your goodness because you have 
love this amazing truth. You know, for wild Mustangs to survive, those wild Mustangs have to have a Mustang lover. Somebody's got to love them, you know. For whales to survive, whales need a lover. People that love whales. Now, I like them, but I don't like love them or anything, you know. But these folks that love them, they'll get out there and on rowboats, you know, and try to stop people from killing them, you know. Because for whales to survive, they've got to have a lover, you know. I guess for anything to survive, it's got to have somebody that loves it. You see a guy going down the road. He's got an old car on a trailer back there. It's rusted. It's a rust bucket, you know. Windows all busted out. Seats sticking up. Cushions all like they exploded inside it, you know. He's got a smile on his face and a $100 bill wouldn't wipe off, you know. He found, he's found a treasure. You know what? He's an old car lover. And for old cars to survive, it's got to have a lover. And for truth to survive, to love her. Somebody's got to love the truth. You've got to love the truth enough to preserve it, take care of it, teach it to your children. For anything in this world to survive, it's got to find a lover. And I'm glad in you folks, truth has found a lover. And truth survives because people love it. But there's the generation that doesn't love the truth. Therefore, they think it won't survive. But it's always weathered enough storms and enough problems and circumstances. Something that we can do, be blessed of God. The Bible said when Samson was brought out of prison, they took a lad to lead him. Here come a lad and a Samson walking out. Little bitty guy, great big guy come walking out. Samson says, would you? Show me where I can put my hands on the pillars on which this building rests. The little boy showed him where to put his hands at. I'm going to close with this. Samson had power, but he had no vision. The little boy had vision, but he had no power. And when you take one generation with power and another generation with vision, and they take hold of hands. They do more in their death than Samson did in all of his life because two generations connected together. 